You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 12th of September, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from our bureau in Zurich. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, Christine Lagarde, the head of the International Monetary Fund, warns that the U.S.-China trade war could send a shock to emerging markets. My guests Florian Egley and Ralph Atkins will be discussing who the winners and losers are in this spat between the two largest economies in the world. We'll then dissect another row, this time between Hungary and the European Union. The latter today voted in favor of punishing Prime Minister Viktor Orban for eroding democracy in his country. Plus, why traditional establishment parties are struggling in so many countries. And can staying in the same time zone all year round actually make us stupider and grumpier? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Daniel Bitch. So welcome to Midori House. My guest today are Ralph Atkins, the Switzerland and Austria correspondent for the Financial Times, and Florian Egli, vice president of Forus, a Swiss foreign policy think tank. Welcome to the program. This the first time for both of you. Uh, this is our roundtable show, gentlemen. A discussion of the day's most interesting news stories, and here's the format. We have four topics and about 30 minutes to discuss between us, so let's get right into it then. Uh, the head of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, is warning the U.S.-China trade war could send a, quote, shock to emerging markets, ones already struggling. Ralph uh, Lagarde tells your paper, the FT, she does not see the so-called contagion spreading to multiple, multiple countries beyond those seeing investors flee, but that the situation could change rapidly. The warning there. Does this sum up the situation as the deck in the FT uh, today says? Uh, trade war spor- spurs uncertainty. Is that the world we live in? Uncertainty? Uh, we always have uncertainty, mm. in, uh, especially in financial markets and uh, investors, analysts always like to say uncertainty is at a high level. Whether it's higher now than it has been before, who knows? I, I think though that what you do pick up when you talk to um, financial market experts around the world, bankers, analysts, um, shareholders, is there is a lot of nervous nervousness about the prospect of, of global trade wars um, and the repercussions for macro economies, but uh, uh, more immediately for financial markets. And uh, I think there's a lot of people who are saying, you know, when does the next big, we have the 10th anniversary of the global financial crisis sure. this week, so a lot of discussion about when's the next one, where's it going to be, what's going to be the trigger. And I think that global trade wars are certainly seen as something that could trigger um, a flight of nervousness, flight towards havens, a flight out of emerging markets. And I think that's what um, Ms. Mrs. Lagarde was hinting at mm. in her comments. Uh, Turkey, Argentina, these countries have been really struggling. Uh, what other countries could be in trouble next, do you think, Florin? Um, I think, I don't know, predictions in terms of what countries could mm. be next are extremely difficult. Um, I'd actually rather like to take a step back and, mm. and focus on, on, on a kind of a paradox that we that we see because it's in a sense, it's quite interesting that um, kind of globalization was one of the main triggers that, that, that brought people such as President Trump to power that now fight back on that, which kind of makes sense, right? But then who's going to be hurt from that is the actual same people um, that kind of started this this whole movement. So I think there is 
and I completely agree there is there is the economy and, and, and there is investors and you have to keep these dynamics in mind but mm. but it's really a much larger sort of social phenomenon that is that is behind this too I think yeah, really interesting uh, this warning from the guard comes as Donald Trump's administration is set to uh, possibly make things worse let's say preparing a further 200 billion dollars in tariffs China has promised to hit back on those uh, this all could take a toll on growth in China making things perhaps much worse in Asia considering uh, the supply chain there is that is that right uh, absolutely. I think one of the uh, categories of countries that could be affected mm. are those who depend on China for um, trade. And uh, if China economy slows, then of course, then there's a knock-on effect immediately. I think th- these things tend to be exaggerated. You have to remember that since the global financial crisis 10 years ago, central banks have pumped so much liquidity into the markets. There's so many investors seeking that uh, extra little bit of, of yield, which they look to from emerging markets. Mm. And uh, of course, the big fear is that that could very rapidly go into reverse. Uh, emerging uh, markets uh, struggling to win back investors amidst a sort of sell-off, which has been triggered by the rising value of the U.S. dollar. That's a really interesting phenomenon, isn't it, Florian? Yeah, I mean, I guess th- there is currency dynamics um, mm-hmm. behind all of this, and that's what particularly Switzerland feels a lot as well, right? Um, as soon as as there is um, a, a trade dispute coming up, even um, worse, that th- um, there is discussion in the room whether WTO rules still hold, right. and 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 that's that that kind of uncertainty then pushes investors to to Switzerland's the big winner or, exactly. or right. the big loser. Or, depending the which export way industry is mm. is the big loser. The the financial industry is probably the winner. Well, speaking of Switzerland, as we are here, uh, Ralph, perhaps you could break that down a little bit for us. Uh, this idea of weakening, emer- weakening emerging market currencies could also you know, affect uh, Eurozone exporters, such as Germany and Spain. They're often mentioned. But Switzerland, you have to consider as well. Uh, the Swiss franc has been, has been rising, which can cause problems as well. Uh, yeah, was, the, the Swiss have are blessed or, or cursed with being a, deemed a haven mm. uh, in times of uncertainty people buy rush into buying Swiss francs which is great if you own Swiss francs or if you're paid in Swiss francs which the FT kindly pays me in Swiss mm. francs so, um, <laughs> um, but it does cause terrible problems for the uh, well does it cause terrible problems for the export industry I think actually we had a big uh, surge in the franc back in early 2015 everyone thought this would be the end of the world for Switzerland that the uh, economy would go into a session it didn't and in fact, what we've seen in the last few uh, quarters is very strong growth from uh, the Swiss economy, doing very well, nicely. Um, remarkably, though, we still have some of the lowest interest rates in the world here, minus 0.75%. So maybe maybe uh, the SMB will start to think, well, actually, maybe strong francs not so bad and maybe they could even start thinking one day soon about raising interest rates don't get your hopes up too high <laughs> I, I agree but but one one point I, i'd like to to jump in on is the the expert industry which is quite particular i mean you Sorry, can be expert the export or the export i guess it, it <laughs> might, in, in the ideal world it's it converges but i meant the export industry um and and so if 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 you sort of your currency plays against you and your exports become more expensive then you you can sort of live with that situation for a certain period of time and you can optimize on cost and you can uh, maybe optimize on production processes and all of that and we've seen that and costs have gone down for a Swiss export industry but at a certain um, point in time you've kind of faced this decision do you stay or not and and it's important to keep in mind that given 
if, if you were to invest now and to, to build a manufacturing plant now, I can think of very, very few sectors where you would actually set it up in Switzerland. So it's kind of reversing this trend once it happened is really difficult. And I fear that we've we've kind of stretched the line now and we've kind of kind of gotten the, the, the percentages of cost cuts the, that were The deindustrialization of Switzerland. Yeah, well, so we're uh, straying away from emerging markets is mm. what you wanted to do. We're, we're talking about the exact opposite of uh, how we developed. <laughs> well, they all play into each other, perhaps. Uh, but actually, if you look, I was just want to make the point, if you mm. look at the chart of the Swiss franc over the last 100 years, it's been steadily rising and, and Switzerland is still the most, if, uh, one of the, if not the most affluent country in the world. So it hasn't done too badly with a strong franc. If we want to go back uh, to emerging markets, uh, there's a suggestion as well in the Financial Times today, Ralph, that they could still, in some sense, be uh, engines of global growth, it's called. Uh, How does that play? How does that work? Um, Well, there's always a um, divergence between real economies and financial market Mm. flows. And um, logically, of course, um, financial markets should reflect fundamentals, underlying fundamentals, but they don't. Um, I mean, at the moment, the global economy is doing, doing very well and, and, and uh, economies are benefiting from that. So this is partly the reason why Switzerland's doing well. But mm. um, uh, so um, th- the fact that we have f- fears about emerging markets doesn't necessarily mean that there's a sort of fundamental economic weakness. I think what the um, emerging market turmoil we'll see, uh, we're seeing at the moment will do is will we'll differentiate, however, between countries with good fundamentals and Mm. those that have underlying structural problems i think there will be um that differentiation will become more exaggerated in terms of how financial markets react and and one of these fundamentals could be the political system because if you do look at argentina and turkey Mm. then these are distinctly two countries that are run very very badly in terms of politics as well and and it could be the case that that these sort of um, face a larger threat in this in this backlash of 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 emerging or, or this sort of sort of going down of emerging um, economy potential. Just a hypothesis. Fascinating stuff. I want to move now on to another big uh, news story making headlines uh, today. The European Parliament has voted overwhelmingly in favor of launching punitive action against the Hungarian government for eroding democratic rules in the country, it says, with 448 votes in favor, 197 against, 48 abstentions. This marks the first time the EU has triggered the so-called Article 7 procedure against one of its member states, uh, the unprecedented vote could allow Hungary's EU voting rights to be stripped. Uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has already accused the EU of blackmailing and insulting his country. Florian, perhaps we'll start here with you. This seems to mark a meaningful moment in European politics because it showed Mr. Orban has, has lost the support of most of his allies in the European mainstream, perhaps. He'd been a hero of this far-right shift, but his conservative alliance broke with him. Is that a surprise for you at all? I would say it's it's kind of at last it broke mm. rather than a surprise. Um, so I'm 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 quite, in a sense, happy to to observe this and and that the the EU is sort of standing up or there is enough enough momentum to stand up against these tendencies. Um, what I think is is very interesting to observe is that. Um, Ivan Krostev um, wrote, wrote a nice book, it's called After Europe, um, where he has a very skeptical and pessimistic view of the European Union, and mainly because he says that it's not credible um, if as an institution you're, you're, you're based and you're founded on values and you don't follow through with policies and respecting these values. And he mm-hmm. says that the European Union mainly betrayed these values um, during the so-called migration crisis. crisis. Um, and that kind of um, sort of 
that that very difficult balance of power um, is 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 not able to to um, to hold anymore if people realize that that actions don't match to values. And so I guess it's in a sense a very necessary redirection of mm. of of putting values at the at the center stage but whether this is successful or not i mean i mean i highly doubt that that the eu countries will unanimously vote um to sanction um hungary or to um to to um curb the voting rights of hungary Ralph, do you agree with that there that, that perhaps this was just bound to happen considering the direction orban has been taking the country in uh, i don't know if it was bound to happen yeah. um, I, I sort of agree with uh, Florian that perhaps it was uh, sort of long overdue sure. um, and uh, I mean, it's interesting European Parliament uh, asserting itself in, in this way showing the, the role of the European Parliament which I think often gets overlooked um, I think it, it, it's, um, it's a symbolic action though I mean I, as, as Florian says I don't think it's going to be followed through by action because I think it's almost inevitable that Poland right. will veto any um, steps taken against uh, Hungary but I, I'm not so sure if that um, makes it less uh, well obviously it is symbolically important and, and um, uh, we, we, I think that's positive to see that sort of sense of unity that was sure. sort of emerging between the, the parties um, at a time when the EU um, is facing so many challenges uh, we haven't mentioned Brexit so far but, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we had to get there eventually <laughs> But, but I fully agree on that point with Roth because I think effectively it, it's not going to be a big issue for Hungary because sure. Hungary and Poland kind of have have this implicit yeah. deal, right, that they will bail each other out. But but in terms of whether the European Union, um, as as an institution, as a construct, um, has a future of really a meaningful future on this continent, yeah. I think these these uh, uh, these actions are, are forced, super important. What I think interesting is forced politicians to take sides. Yeah. I yeah. mean, for instance, yeah. Sebastian Kurz, who uh, the new Austrian Chancellor, who yeah. wants to play this bridge-building role, he says, and has the, the sort of Freedom Party, the far right, in his coalition government, has actually come out in favour of this motion. I mean, he couldn't um, couldn't uh, fudge this one. I mean, he couldn't sort of back both sides. He and he came out quite clearly in favour of this motion. And I, um, it's maybe a little wrinkle from the world's point of view, but I noticed that the UK Conservatives actually voted against. They were supporting. Orban, um, which hmm. has left them looking, and the rest of the Conservative Party in the UK looking rather awkward. Uh, Mr. Orban's own political alliance uh, had publicly stood by him, and perhaps uh, they would have even voted with him today if not for what the New York Times called his increasingly provocative behavior since the start of this year, particularly, Florian. Uh, when did he cross the line, do you think, for that alliance of, of, of voters that may have backed him before? I'm, I'm not sure whether I can pinpoint where he crossed the line, what, what kind of what I remember or what really stuck to my mind was um, this whole dispute about Central European University and, yeah. and whether it's shut down or not and, and, and George Soros um, and, and his really sort of tough line and that eventually actually shutting down um, this university. I think that kind of crossed the line for me personally, but I don't know. I, I think the maybe the line that's so. been crossed is more that um, the sort of mainstream politicians, if you like, have um, got to the point where they realize they can stand up to yeah. populist politicians. And, and maybe that's the, where the movement has been rather than on the Auburn side. How divided is the EU at the moment over this? Do you think you, you say uh, UK Conservatives have, have, are still backing him? But there are other corners uh, that are backing Hungary as well. Yes, I mean, as we, we've said, I don't think this is going to result in yeah. action by um, against Hungary specifically because uh, you, you need unanimity. 
and there isn't going to be unanimity on this one. But I mean, it was a perhaps more of a show of unity than you might have expected. Mm. I mean, they had the two-thirds um, majority. You cover Austria, as, as we mentioned off the top, and Switzerland, and you've mentioned Austria's sort of bridge role here. Uh, what part do they do they play in this? Are they still caught in the middle of, 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 of this whole thing, which seems to have stemmed from the migration crisis? Yes, I think Austria is a very sort of interesting example of um, where you have a populist party, the Freedom Party, actually in power um, and uh, working with a coalition ally and having to um, adjust to sort of the realpolitik. And uh, I think the Freedom Party have... Um, had to sort of um, take a decision, strategic decision on whether to rock the boat and mm. to be the populist and the protesters and the opposition party or whether to try and act responsibly. And uh, I, this is going to blend into, I don't know if our next topic, but on, on Sweden, yeah. you also have the rise of, um, of populist sort of right-wing politics. And I think perhaps the, the mainstream parties, the mainstream politicians are getting smarter at confronting them. And I think that by, in Austria's case, by taking the Freedom Party into government, Sebastian Kurz has actually forced them to right. confront the realities of, of government. Well, let's move on then to, to our next topic, uh, if possible. Uh, uh, but first, let's take a little break. Uh, we are here in Zurich at our bureau alongside me, Daniel Bates, Ralph Atkins and Florian Egli. Coming up, uh, why so many traditional parties are losing pro- popularity the world over and will staying in the same time zone for the whole year make us stupider and grumpier. Stay tuned. That's coming up. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. Welcome back. You are listening to Midori House with me, Daniel Bache, live from Zurich, still with me, Florian Egli and Ralph Atkins, Sweden. Just the latest country set for political uncertainty after the weekend's election, which resulted in deadlock. The two main centrist coalitions failed to win a majority and the far right Sweden Democrats made significant gains over immigration fears, their biggest gains uh, to date. Sweden is uh, in no way unique uh, as an example of the traditional parties struggling amidst new challengers. Florin, Florian, uh, why does it seem that uh, times are really changing in the world of uh, European politics uh, particularly? I mean, I guess th- there is there is different reasons why traditional parties lose ground um, mm. um, quite rapidly in many European countries. Um, I, I, one of the reasons is at least from from what I what I see in Switzerland is that the sort of tradition of of voting for the same party within the family or within within a sector um, um, has kind of disappeared or even within a region. So it used to be the case that some regions were vote only for Christian Democrats, only for others for the Liberals. That's kind of dissolving. At the same time, there is perhaps a certain um, sense of the, the the hypocrisy of of what we what we do in politics, as in as in 
how we act versus um, what we preach and mm. you know that 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 is, is having effect on, on the established party and there is this sort of general feeling other oh, politicians don't take us seriously and then there's also um, many new tools and digitalization allows us to, to form movements and actually um, and actually challenge parties much more efficiently and, and, and at, at, at lower cost um, and, and I think and then we can also go to their side and say hey um, sort of why is it so easy um, to, to, to pick the topic migration and, mm. and, and win votes and that but I think um, there's really structural factors that that play against um, the traditional old parties in the Western world. Ralph, these, uh, the so-called erosion of popularity for establishment parties across Europe in recent elections has been cause for concern, particularly when it means uh, a shift to the right. This is, uh, this is a long string of examples we've seen, just the latest in Sweden, isn't it? Yes, I, th I think, well, uh, yes, I think that's true. That I think the, the main established parties in, in Europe have lost um, support mm. overall uh, this is a general trend you've seen it in in in, in well uh in austria was, was an example as well and, yeah. and uh, the collapse of the the left and you see it in germany and 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 and, and everywhere um I, mean, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing actually i mean yeah. i think i think it's it's a it's a as Florian said it's a factor of shifting allegiances uh, allegiance is shifting faster loyalty is breaking down which maybe you could attribute to the sort of the internet age where you, do, you, you don't buy a package holiday you book yep. your hotel and you um, surf to find the best car deal and, and I think that and that the, the information is, is more available so you, you you do your politics in the same way a bit of this bit of that I think it's actually quite helpful because I think it requires for, for decisions to be made and action to be taken you actually require a majority mm. of popular opinion in a way which uh, you're coming back to this almost Swiss model I mean I know the in the UK with the whole Brexit debate, there is um, now complete confusion because no uh, one way forward has the sufficient support mm. in Parliament um, to, to win a majority. And, and so there's a lot of uncertainty what will actually happen there. I think I'm hoping it will still result in a sensible, pragmatic mm. um, outcome. But um, the, the fact that the um, pro and anti-Brexit splits both the Conservative and the Labour Party, the two main parties. So you have absolutely no um, sort of party loyalty. Party loyalty sure. is gone on that issue. Uh, Florian, would you take that up? That sort of a, a shake-up could be a good thing overall? Yeah, most certainly. I mean, what I kind of envision for, for, for a sensible um, political discourse would be that there are sort of certain fora where um, you can agree on, on, on positions on very important issues such as trade, such as how to execute Brexit, um, such as in Switzerland, how to form your relations with the European Union. And that can be irrespective of party membership. Mm. And, and if, these, yeah. if these kind of, kind of fora or, or, or movements are strong enough to really convey a message, then it has a very interesting potential of, 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 of making majorities possible on very important issues. And then kind of letting the field and the little nitty-gritty stuff play. No one party machine. Uh, Exactly. For, uh, exactly. For a program, you have a, a, a proper debate. I think. Yeah. If we uh, maybe just look at the Swiss model, um, if we're talking about parties and voting, organizing regular v votes on a number of things, uh, does this offer a solution, perhaps, to making people feel more involved? Do you think, Florian, in, in their politics? I mean, the interesting thing is that surveys tend to tell you otherwise. So if yeah. you look at surveys and look at how, for example, young people um, are interested or involved in politics, then Switzerland usually scores quite badly yeah. um, uh, compared to other European countries. 
But on the other hand, I think the, the, the huge value in the system is the, the large um, debate that really um, happens before um, every vote. And it happens in all the newspapers. It happens across all TV stations. And it's really not, no escape is possible. And it's mm-hmm. not this sort of the elite talks about politics and tries to choose a wise way. And then it's communicated to the wider population. But this whole massive discourse is happening right within every, every segment yeah. of the society. And that's fascinating. Yeah, Switzerland's the only country in the world where you could have a serious debate amongst all the voters about whether the uh, banks should be allowed to create money or whether this right should be left just to the central bank, which is the debate we had um, in the summer. Or, or whether um, you should be granted one week more holidays. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and to vote against it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, is, is perhaps predicting the success of political parties becoming more difficult, do you think? Yes, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I would completely agree with that. Um, I, I think that that is that also has, has has some good and bad news. The good news is sure. that that some very established politicians are a bit less comfortable in their seats right. and have to actually worry a bit more and find more innovative solutions. The bad news is perhaps that what we've talked about before, um, also um, regimes such as trade regimes, of course, become less predictable if the parties in power right. in these countries change more frequently. It's a learning experience. I mean, I think the referendum worked well in Switzerland. I think uh, I would argue that referendums did not work well in the UK's case. Fair enough. We'll we'll leave it there. I want to move away from Brexit for the evening. But uh, finally, being in Switzerland, I thought it would be sensible to discuss clocks. A strong history in watchmaking and the invention of the railway clock here means the minutes and seconds matter. But the European Commission proposing an end to the twice annual changing of the clocks in the EU. Uh, Jean-Claude Juncker announcing today that the EU would also leave it to individual EU countries to choose whether to stay on summer or winter time throughout the year. However, uh, getting rid of changing the clocks may not be quite as positive as you may first think. A German expert now warning that changing the clocks to summertime could also cause problems, uh, diabetes, depression, sleep, uh, learning problems. In other words, Europeans may get fatter, stupider, and grumpier. Uh, Would this be a massive issue in Switzerland, do you think? I don't know. I find it most of all um, um, kind of entertaining yeah. that the, that President Juncker and and the EU um, finds it, this issue important enough to um, to deliberate on it um, for for days and days and and a newspaper cover it and it, it kind of shows that maybe a bit of the the, the saddening state of of the oh no the, I think it was a smart decision the I think it, it was shown that they can kind of uh, I don't I don't think they deliberated for days I think yeah. they saw the headlines yeah. I thought oh, this is an easy win yeah we can have a bit of popular support by doing this and, you, and uh, I, I, the interesting thing I, actually is that. Switzerland, of course, is not in the EU, so yeah. it's a question of whether Swiss government would play we, along with it. Yeah, yeah, can actually get it through, and or whether we will have uh, at least for some time we might have Swiss time yeah. separate from Swiss time an hour away, which would be until we have a referendum. Until you have yeah, a referendum, you have or it. be when it's defeated in referendum. And uh, <laughs> I thought that the compromise I heard was that instead of moving clocks backwards and forwards by an hour, it should just half an hour and stay sure. there. Yeah, of course. I mean, I believe my point may be then, would it cause chaos around Switzerland and having to deal with all these European Union countries if they were on different times? I'm sure the Swiss would, would cope, but... Uh, they, they do already. Okay. <laughs> They'd run by their own clock, of course. Um, might this boost the popularity of the European Union in some funny way, as you say, trying to grab the headlines there? Um, 
possibly. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe after a little while it would, it would soon be forgotten. I, I, I thought you were going to come to the substance of the point, which was whether um, going on to permanent sometime, yeah. summertime would make people grumpier, and, uh, yeah. which I'm not convinced. I, I, think I would at least say it should be going permanently to wintertime. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the research has even stated it, and from my personal experience, most definitely I would prefer wintertime. <laughs> the uh, Swiss love getting up early anyway. I mean, that is yeah. true, yeah. <laughs> How would that affect sort of a day-to-day in, in, in Zurich, perhaps? People are up so early, out swimming, out running, um, and into the office early as well. Sure, sure. I think I, I don't think I think changing clocks twice a year is a very sort of arbitrary decision, and mm. actually, but w- would make more sense to change, for instance, school hours. I mean, I think yeah. one of the arguments is that teenagers particularly are not very good first thing in the morning yeah. and when they get up in the dark and some biological change whatever makes them no- but why not have um, start early in the summer and have the afternoons off to go and swim in the lake and then maybe start later in the winter yeah. but go later in the evenings in the winter in, in school hours uh, maybe that might be sure and the nice side effect would be to sort of sh- shave off the peak hours in, in traffic and all of that Absolutely. Um, which was yeah. planned, uh, planned right. uh, or it, it debated a long time but, but I think happened. we've just invented daylight saving time and I think that's the whole point <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, that does uh, bring us to the end of today's show. Ralph Atkins, Florian Egley, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House, a very special edition in our Zurich Bureau tonight here. Today's show produced by Marcus Hippie. It was researched by Mary-Sophie Schwartzer. Our studio manager was Kieran Banerjee here in Zurich across the table and Christy Evans back in London. There is more music next. And then at 1900 Hours, it will be The Entrepreneurs with host Matt Alagaya today, a discussion with the founder of All birds the uh, sustainable shoe brand and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the monocle daily that is later 2200 london time 2300 here in zurich midori house back at the same time tomorrow 1800 london time 1900 in zurich i'm daniel Bage. thank you so much for joining us and goodbye